0: Greetings and welcome to the Business of Agriculture podcast with me your host Damian Mason we get together here every week and discuss issues impacting the industry that we all love it's the business of agriculture it's the food business it's farming it's Sometimes fuel and fiber. Today, I got a great guest. His name is Troy Bachelman. He's an analyst with Cattle Facts. If you are not familiar with Cattle Facts, he's going to tell you what they do, what he does, why it matters to you. Because if you are in the business of agriculture, even if you're not a cattle person, he's going to give you data about protein, about protein consumption, trends, about cattle cycles, about exports, about imports. You're saying, hey, man, I'm a grain farmer. I'm out here growing grain. I don't care about all that. Yes, you do. Because remember, we're all in the same industry the industry of food production. So let's say you grow barley. You think you just make beer. No, a lot of your stuff still goes to the cattle industry and a lot of your corn, if you're a corn farmer, soybean farmer, wheat farmer, a lot of your stuff ends up being animal feed. And so that's why we're here to talk about meat, about the future, about consumption, about cycles. Troy Backelman, welcome to the Business of Agriculture.
1: Uh, Thank you for having me.
0: I really appreciate you coming on here. Uh, Mr. Bachelman was just a speaker at a conference where I also was a speaker. As you know, that's what I do. I go to ag conferences and get on stage and talk about the uh, issues impacting the industry. And uh, Troy gave some really good information. I liked it. And that's why I said, I'd like to have you on there. So first off, what does Cattle Facts do? And that's Cattle Facts, F-A-X, like an old facsimile machine, the word cattle in front of it. What's Cattle Facts do?
1: Yeah, so CattleFax started 51 years ago as a member-owned cooperative that facilitated cash trade in the fed cattle market as well as market reporting. Currently, we now have, you know, shifted, we still do that, but we've shifted more to a consulting role, and we cover, you know, 60 to 65 percent of the cow caps in the U.S. as well as, you know, 70 to 75 percent of the fed cattle on either the, um, you know, the cash reporting as well as more of a consulting type So when you
0: say you cover it, you mean you have all the data from 100% of it. You're saying the customer base, the people that produce cow calves, and if you're a listener that says, hey, man, I sell seed in Georgia. I don't even know what he's talking about. All right, cow-calf operation means generally ranching type operations they run brood cows and they produce a calf and they sell one calf a year those calves uh unless they are selected for breeding stock go and end up uh, in the meat trade explain that to our listeners in case they're just go with basics 101 here
1: yeah so you know a cow calf operation is going to be everything from your you know your small family farm to has a full-time job in town maybe 20 to 50 head and he has some mama cows there that he produces calves and market them you know, in the fall after weaning, to some of the bigger operations, you know, whether they have, you know, 10,000 acres or 100,000 acres, we cover all that. So when I say we cover, you know, our members who who are member-owned, so our members, you know, own about 65% of all the cow calves in the country.
0: And then you said on feed yards, because a lot of these calves end up in our system the way it is right now. And some of the foodies don't like this, but most of the beef that is consumed in the United States of America and by our customers abroad is raised in a a system that's been in place since about the 40s, where the calves uh, go through weaning, then they get backgrounded. Uh, which means they might be on grass or they might be in a different situation. Then they go to a feed yard and get fed up to 1,300 pounds, let's say, on average to be butchered. So explain that.
1: Yeah, so you start with like a 550 uh, weight calf in the fall, and you might put that, like you said, a backgrounder. So you're going to bring a 550, and you might either put them on winter wheat, You might put them in some sort of grow yard where you feed them uh you know more of a forage type ration bring them from like a 550 to a 750 or eight in the early part of the spring and then they would go into a feed yard and be fed from that you know whether it be 750 to 850 or 750 to 9, bring them back up to that 13, 1400 level where they're ready for harvest.
0: Those are pounds he's talking about. Remember, these people that do this every day, they tend to talk over the head of somebody that doesn't. You know, Let's say I'm a cranberry producer in Massachusetts listening to this. I'm like, what the heck is he talking about? 1300, what's he talking about? Those are pounds, and that's where we're talking about. So cattle facts keeps their finger on all this, but so does the United States Department of Agriculture, because I get numbers about cattle on feed reports, but you go a little deeper because the United States Department of Agriculture doesn't do all the digging that Cattlefax does. Am I right?
1: Correct. Not only do we have the Department of Agriculture data, you mentioned the cattle on feed inventory. So we'll get the cattle on feed inventory and the you know, might say that Nebraska has X amount of head on cattle on feed. Well, what does that actually mean? How much is that above a year ago, below a year ago? What does that mean for the market going forward? How is the price response to that? And then we also collect member data as well. So we have member data. We have the largest, you know, private database like that where we collect placement data and all that stuff and so we can compare what the USDA says to what our members say and is there any discrepancies and what could that then entail in the market as well.
0: So if you're in the cattle business you want to listen to what Califax says and if you're in the cattle business you probably would be a subscriber because you're you're right there but you're also giving up your own information because as you said you're member owned. Uh, Is there any reason I would not want to divulge my information if I'm a big uh, beef operator?
1: Well, you have that choice. So most of the people who give up their own member data would be feedlots. And so they see the value in that by able to take and look at what they're doing. And we don't share, like you won't know if I'm Bob Jones Feed Yard. You don't know what Bob Jones Feed Yard is doing, but it might give you what is Nebraska doing and things like that, and to have things like in-weights, outweights so that the USDA doesn't necessarily would be able to give you as a, accurate as some of the things that we do.
0: Okay, so then you gave some wonderful numbers in your presentation about this, uh, and one thing you talked about was cattle cycles. So everybody that's listening to the Business of Agriculture podcast is involved in the industry in one fashion or another, and then everybody that eats. There's a thing that happens more in beef than any other uh, uh, industry, it seems like, and that's The cycle. It's the expansion and contraction. And uh, I want you to give a a quick, brief understanding or explanation of that so that people get that.
1: Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned the pork and you mentioned the poultry. On average, pork and poultry increase their production year over year. They continue to grow those industries where cattle it takes a little longer than beef and pork you know you can get a chicken through the whole process in, you know two to three months and a hog maybe takes six months where on cattle it's really 18 to 24 months and they're more dependent on that grass and that pasture type situation and so we have a you know the expansion stabilization and contraction of the cattle cycle based on it's really driven by profitability in the segments as well as the weather conditions because if you don't have a lot of pasture you don't your cost increase to feed that mama cow, you might get rid of that mama cow and contract that industry. And so there's more of a cycle as you go through in the cattle industry.
0: Yeah, and it takes longer. I remember once hearing about seven years because of the fact that you've got the, you bring the female heifer in, you know, you get her bred and then you're still cowing up and you're you're producing all you can. And then the length of time to get them also fed and and, uh, to butcher and all that. so these cycles tend to take a while to happen, and then it seems like there's a little bit—not wild price swings for the consumer, but there's wild profitability for the producer. Am I right?
1: Well, there would be swings in that profitability. I wouldn't call it wild profitability because you're you're not always making a profit. But there's swings in that profitability just based on that because of the fact it takes so long to produce this, and you know, economic theory says that if you you produce at the cost of production, and if your if your costs are below the cost of or your revenue is above the cost of production you continue to in or increase that production and so that just drives that cycle where if the cow calf producer is unprofitable he's less likely to expand and more likely to send mama cow to town at the end of the year and then that would contract the cow herd the next year
0: okay you talked a lot about consumption, uh, and I've worked for the pork people, and I've worked for the poultry people, and I keep my finger on this because I'm, I'm not a markets guy the way you are. I'm a consumer observer kind of guy and marketplace guy. That's why I say I'm a marketplace guy, not a markets guy. Uh, my research says that uh, when I was born 50 years ago, the average American ate about 32 to 34 pounds of chicken. Uh, we're three times that now. We're almost at 100 pounds of chicken per American consumed per year. Beef... In the late 1970s, early 1980s, we were around 80 pounds. I think the highest we ever at beef consumption in the United States of America was in the mid-90s, low, and I'm talking about pounds, 90-some pounds of consumption. Today, we're at about 56 to 57 pounds of beef consumption. Uh, So we've lost 20 to 25 pounds just in the last 30 years on beef. Pork seems like it stays right there in that, what, 50 pounds per American per year consumption pattern.
1: Yeah, pork has really shown that if you get above 52 pounds per person, the pork market responds lower dramatically if you get above that 52 pounds. The market meaning uh prices uh-huh. retail prices wholesale prices live hog prices things like that respond lower if you get above that 52 pounds per person that's about what the US consumer has told the market they want to consume each year it
0: just it doesn't really move that much i don't i'm not sure that it moves i mean it would move with population in other words if we brought in a bunch of say uh islamic people that don't eat pork um But as long as it's uh, not from an ethnic population change, it just seems to be right in there. Poultry, of course, on the other hand, is three times itself. Their only marketing is that they're cheap. Uh, Folks don't understand that. On the beef side, they keep wondering if it's about money. And I say it's not about money, it's about marketing. But you tell me.
1: On the beef side, is definitely about marketing. So the U.S. consumer has said that they want high-quality beef products. They want choice, and they want prime. And because of that, that higher quality, we've been able to capture more uh, revenue on less market share because of that higher-quality product. And we've also differentiated the beef product from the pork and the poultry because now there's really two types of beef products. There's the middle meats, the ribs, the loins, the... You know, the, you think about going to the restaurant and you have a strip loin or you have a ribeye. You don't really go to the restaurant and say, you know what, I really want a ribeye or should I get a chicken breast? You go to the steakhouse to get a ribeye, and that's where the market has really differentiated itself. Now, hamburger does go ahead and compete with the pork and with the chicken a little bit more. And 40% of the beef produced is hamburger, so there is that market there. But there's really a differentiation between the two types of beef the higher quality versus the pork and the poultry.
0: I loved the fact that you said that in your presentation, that 40% of the beef that we produce is burger. Yep, And, of course, uh, you know, me being a hobbyist, beef farmer myself, I know that uh, people say, hey, what do I do with the, the stew meat? And what do I do with these Swiss steaks? And I say, make them into burger because you'll use it. You'll use it for taco meat, spaghetti and meatballs, meatloaf, lasagna, chili. Uh, so 40 percent, which, of course, is a great way to get rid of older cows. Now, a neat little side note here about consumption. I shared this on social media, Troy. By the way, if you forgot who I'm talking to, I'm talking to Troy Bachman. He's an analyst with Cattle Facts here on the Business of Agriculture podcast. Uh, So I put it out last week on social media, an article that I had read about high-end steakhouses in places like Chicago or uh, the Bay Area in in San Francisco, you name it, uh, they were uh, putting old steaks on the menu so this is a new thing and they use a word it's a spanish word i don't know uh, viva viva, something i can't pronounce and they're talking about using six to eight year old cows as the steak this goes against everything that us beef people think you're supposed to do you're supposed to take a steer get it produced up there to by about 18 20 months you want to have that steer go into slaughter and you want to have some marbling on it and you want it to grade choice or prime and then they're talking about an old six eight year old cow even a dairy cow and they talked about its flesh have you heard about this trend
1: no I haven't really heard about this trend but you think about the uptick in the not necessarily organic but the you know the grass-fed type movement and you know when you think about how many cattle are produced whether it be the conventional uh, grain finished versus the grass-fed all the way time all the way through the time you can get some of that grass-fed product through those cows
0: Yeah, actually, I'm a I'm a firm believer that we're going to still have we're even more so going to have commodity beef. And it'll still be graded, choice, and prime, et cetera. And then there's going to be even more specialization. Now, 30 years ago, we invented a certified Angus beef product. Okay, that's fine. That's specialized a little bit. It's branded. It's allegedly value-added just because of their, the work they've done there. I'm talking about when I see that they're charging $58 for a ribeye that came from a six-year-old dairy cow. That was quoted in the Wall Street Journal, by the way. Look it up, dear listener. $58 a pound at RPM Steakhouse in Chicago for what they said was a six-year-old dairy cow. Now, uh, the beef people are just shaking right now. They're just like, they, they're they so mad they ran their truck off the road thinking that an old Holstein uh, got $58 a pound ribeyes in Chicago. But it is, it is pointing at there's a thing about flavor, there's a thing about differentiation, because you know that if you eat a six-year-old Holstein uh, steak, it is going to have a little different flavor than the choice steak you go and grab at Kroger. So I see a real opportunity. I said in my post, I said, we should embrace this, Troy, because here's one more way that we went to grass-fed. We went to certified Angus. We went to uh, no organic, uh, no hormones ever. We went to no antibiotics ever. What the hell? Keep it going. Because if there, if there's a marketplace that will command a premium for this, let's go and capture it.
1: Well, so if you're a cattle or a beef producer here in the S, you, you really... You need to be consumer-focused. You need to be driven by what the consumer wants. And if the consumer wants that product, that's maybe a small niche market. You know, I don't know how many stores are producing that, and it's a small niche market. But if it's what the consumer wants, wouldn't you want to give the consumer what they want?
0: Uh, you don't know me that well because I just pulled you aside at this conference and said I wanted your information, I wanted you to be a guest. But I'm going to tell you something that my ag people may not enjoy hearing. Most of agriculture's problem on a big production level is that we think like producers, not promoters. We think like farmers, not like marketers. And the thing that that really boils down to is we don't always care about the consumer. We talk about how we want them to, uh, you know, understand and all that. we got to educate them. But we forget that it's a consumer-driven marketplace. Their dollars are what we work for.
1: I would agree that it's a consumer-driven marketplace. You know, I, I don't necessarily agree that they think that this is what they should give the consumer and the consumer should just take it a lot of it is just due to the channel of communication up and down the supply chain does it get passed through does the consumer show the producer what they want, and does the producer willing to respond? And we've shown over time that, you know, in historically, if you go back to the 80s, we produced a lot more select product. Now, the the thing is, beef might be one of the worst
0: violators of that. There is still a cowboy mentality like, we're going to make this, and you ought to eat beef because beef's good for you, it! Now, you just go ahead and eat this beef. I was once on a feed yard six or ten years ago in Nebraska, and I talked about carcass weight, and I said, why are you getting these steers so big? I mean, uh, Uh, And then they told me why, and I said, you're going to start having to bring these carcass weights down uh, because of the facilities and the handling capacity, but also the consumer. If I invite my neighbors in Phoenix, Arizona, that are suburban people, that are not ag people, I say, come on over for dinner. And a man and wife come over and meet me and Lori, and we have steaks. And I put a huge steak that is from an 880-pound carcass steer on their plate. They can't eat it. And uh, the person at the feed yard, Nebraska, said, yeah, well, that doesn't matter to which it tells me you are completely out of touch with who pays the bills here. It is ultimately the consumer. But I do see signs of a lot of things that are really starting to change in that where we start to realize we've got to be a little more consumer responsive.
1: Yeah, it really comes down to that economic signal. That economic signal has to be sent down the pipeline if you're at the retail level going lower to the, even back to the cow-calf. That economic signal has to be sent down that. You think about the product that goes to EU, which would be your never, ever, uh, no hormone, no gr- growth promoting, no antibiotic. You know, that incentive to produce that product, to ship the EU, and also now with China, with their regulations are the same. You have to send that economic signal down the pipeline and encourage that producer to produce that product, or he has no reason to
0: change. And I understand, I know, because I am a farm guy, and I was a farm guy, and where the consumer is fickle. Uh, It's something today and then tomorrow it's something else. And I understand where the producer is out here saying, man, I can't keep up, you know, uh, three years from now is gonna be something different and it takes me two years to get things changed. So I understand the resistance or lack of understanding on the production side, but we don't really still have a choice because we can make a premium and a profitable uh, move sometimes by doing that. What else do you see? Because I talk a lot about trends. Uh, Okay, 40% goes to burger, consumer-focused. I see these different niche products that are going to, I believe, grow. I see commodity-type beef still being the Walmart shopper, but even you talked about. Walmart's now getting high-end. In 400 of their stores, they're going to bring in a more high-end product, a more branded product. So I think commodity stuff just continues to fill a void of cheap, but we as an industry can really ramp up our non-commodity food offerings.
1: Yeah, I mean first of all, you have to define what is commodity beef, right? Is commodity beef that you know, 65% choice that is in the CME live cattle futures contract. Is that still commodity? Well, that specification was old, or Did this commodity beef move up higher to maybe 70% choice? And so there's always going to be room for those niche markets. You know, the consumer will have to respond through the pocketbook to be able to increase those um, production of those niche type markets, but you know, really the commodity beef will likely always be there. We still will need hamburger. You know, there's still going to be a market. If you go to the store and I go to the store, you know, I'm looking for that 80 to 85% lean. Someone else might be looking for that 93% lean. And so you do have to you know, we have a growing population here in the U.S. There's 330 million people. 330 pe- million people all have different tastes and preferences. So there will be a place for all of this as we go forward.
0: There will be a place. That's the thing I get excited about, and I, I communicate all the time to my ag audiences and to the people that listen to the show. Let's not fear this. Let's embrace it. Now, maybe it's not right. I rent my farmland to a dairy farm that is a conventional large-scale modern dairy operation he's not gonna put in his own pasteurizer or sell bottled milk or grass-fed he is a large-scale commodity dairy farmer but then if you wanted to somehow have 24 Ayrshire cows that were grass-fed you're gonna have to then play into a niche it's gonna be the same thing on meat speaking of meat most poultry and we've been feeding the heck out of people. Now they're up to almost 100 pounds of it. What do you see in poultry? Have we leveled off? Is this where we stay, or does it get even more so?
1: You know, I think we continue to see increased poultry production. They've been building new plants. They don't build plants to leave idle. You know, they'll continue to increase poultry production. And as a result of that, we'll probably see an increase in poultry consumption. But we also think about the U.S. consumer and the income levels we have. And so a lot of the poultry consumption is driven by the economics Of the U.S. Chicken is cheap. Chicken is cheap. And so if we, you know, we see a slowdown in the in the U.S. incomes, U.S. economy, you'll see more chicken consumed. How
0: much can the consumer eat if we're at 97 pounds of chicken and we're at uh, one third of that back when I was born? What when does just because we keep producing it, I guess then the the supply and demand work themselves out. It just gets cheaper and cheaper. But at some point, doesn't the uh, doesn't the American consumer say I'm chickened out?
1: Yeah, the same thing happens with pork, right? When pork consumption gets above that 52 pounds per person. Now, I don't know what that number is on chicken, but at 52 pounds per person, the U.S. consumer says, you know what, we're not going to eat any more pork. That will likely happen with chicken. Now, I don't know what the number is, but that would be the economic signal that would send it back through the marketplace to tell the chicken producer to slow their production.
0: Since you're mostly a beef guy, since you work for cattle, facts, is 57 pounds of annual beef consumption per American where we're going to stay? Is that the number? Or is it going to go down?
1: Well, I think that'll definitely be dictated by the um, cycle of the cattle industry. You know, what we have available and then also the export picture. You know, the U.S. consumer has proven that if there's a little bit more product on the marketplace, they will eat a little more, albeit at a little bit of lower price. But the same story goes with pork and poultry. Eventually, the U.S. consumer will say, you know what, I've had enough. I'm not... For another pound of beef, I'm not going to give you the money that you want for it. And that's what will start the contraction phase in the cattle industry. So it, we have leveled off. I mean, I, I talk
0: about the, the big drop happened from 30 years ago when the beef checkoff program, which I always point out, if, you, if it's about promotion – then we're doing promotion wrong. And maybe the beef industry is because when they began the checkoff program in the mid 80s, we were at 22 pounds more per person today of consumption. So while we started doing promotion, we also lost 22 pounds. Either that was gonna be worse or the marketing didn't work. What's your take?
1: Well, I don't know if the marketing didn't work or it's it's gonna be worse, but I do know that the, the, the price of beef during that time relative to pork and poultry has increased at a faster rate then pork and chicken has increased. And so while we've leveled off or decreased consumption since, say, the 80s, we've also given them a higher quality, higher value product. And so that's brought more money into the marketplace relative to that time, even with the decreased consumption. It is I believe
0: always the first thing that agricultural people go to, they think it's always about the money and the price. Now, we live in a society in the United States of America today that has a pretty good amount of money and is looking for ways to spend more money on food with a story. can we continue to create more stories to command a higher price, or is that going to only happen with niche products?
1: I believe the industry is working towards that way. You know, think about the farm-to-table type promotions. I know there's some retailer stores that, you know, will bring a farmer into a store and do things like that to to develop more of them, personal stories. Um, You know, you think about kind of... The feedlot operations where they're, you know, they're feeding cattle through there, you see a lot of more of those types of operations, bringing people in, showing them that, hey, this isn't an inhumane type thing that we're doing here. These cattle are treated very well. They're taken care of very well. They have all their needs met, you know, and just developing that, you know, that personal touch to the beef industry as well.
0: Okay, so uh, you're going to be hearing me uh, deliver a presentation later on yet today, and I talk a lot about uh, the consumer marketplace, the angle on plant-based meat, and this is where I believe a lot of my friends and our our compatriots in agriculture get this wrong, Troy, they think, again, it's about price. Well, that plant-based burger, it's more. I'm like, again, the consumer, you think it's all about nickels because the A lot of ag people believe it's all about commodity and pricing. And I say, no, no, no. My neighbors in Phoenix, Arizona, don't care if it's a dollar more per pound. They want to feel as though they've saved the earth. They want to feel as though they've done something good. It's going to be sold on humanitarian treatment, and it's going to be sold on environmental. And environmentalism is probably going to be the big one.
1: Your take yeah i would say that's true you know every consumer is going to have their own you know values and moral based that they want to think about you know they wanted that feel good story i'm saving the environment and they're willing to pay a little bit more for it you know as we go through time there will be that plant-based protein that's out there i believe that's probably here to stay um you know how much market share that really takes you know that'll that'll dictate over time but you know if you want organic beef versus conventional beef, you've shown that you're willing to pay that extra money for that organic beef. Is the U.S. consumer going to take this plant-based protein, pay the little extra for it, feel good about it, and eventually is it going to be where, well, that's not really as what I like, it doesn't taste that good, I haven't tried it, so I don't know if it tastes good or not, but you know, that U.S. consumer is going to have to decide, is that something they want, and if they want that then the US consumer is gonna dictate that it's here to stay and they have to prove that they're willing to pay for it. And so whether it's a dollar more or $10 more, there's people out there, as you said, You know, the incomes are good, the economies are good, we have money, we want to spend on things. You know, there's going to be those people that want it just like they want that cow steak in in New York.
0: Okay, I I agree. Yeah, I think it's here to stay. I don't believe lab-based meat is going to have such an easy ride as plant-based because the folks that say, I want my food to be natural are going to be, if I'm in the beef, poultry, pork business, turkey business, seafood business, you know, I'm going to stand up and scream. I'm going to say, you want all natural? That is Petri dish protein. I would just continue to have ads of someone in a lab coat uh, with Petri dishes. And I think I can pretty easily get past that. Plant-based meat, I believe is for sure real. I don't think it's going to take over the market. I believe it's going to take over a small percentage of the market. I kind of almost see it being like organic, which right now, across the board organic food sales i believe are in that 6 to 8% range last i read depending on category of course uh you know organic lettuce is one thing organic meat is another one what else do you see because i see i see a, a real opportunity for uh beef because i see a lot of marginal land coming out of production because we can even in a year like this we're going to be producing so much crops 10 years from now, there will be less acres cultivated than there are right now in the United States of America, and the marginal land that we have to work like hell to get water to, or it's too slopey and erosive, is going to go back to grass. I see an opportunity for cattle and sheep and maybe even goats. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I would would agree that the more pasture we have, the more, um, you know, it's going to be the difference. If I can... Marginal acres you're talking about. So if I can make more money putting some mama cows on those acres, I'll probably put some mama cows on those acres than I would plant corn. You know, that could be a space for these niche markets. Yeah, I
0: think grass-fed is going to grow because of consumer demand, but also because... I see acres when I go around the United States of America that truly shouldn't be in crop production. They needed to be 100 years ago because we needed every acre we could to feed a growing country. We don't need those anymore. We've got cheap crops and we've got uh, abundant amounts of bushels per acre off of the good ground. I see another issue facing beef since you're a beef guy. The average cow-calf operation I read once is only about 35 cows per operator. And the average age of that is older than the American farmer, which is 58 years old. The average ranch operation, I read once, is like in the mid-late 60s. They die. Junior's gone away. Who are we going to have raising these?
1: You know, that's the real question. You have a lot of people that are having kids, and they're, maybe they're older, and their kids went off to college. And then they had kids, and what you're seeing is a lot of the grandkids come back to the farm. Uh, we're seeing a lot of minority owners and a lot of women owners that are coming into these farm type situations. You know the whole agricultural system that we have uh twenty years ago and now those people are getting up into retirement age and looking to transfer that on, that will be a challenge as we go forward, not only for the labor side of things, but also for the ownership and who's gonna be running these things. You know, I do believe that there will be uh, people who step up and take them operations, but a lot like the fed cattle side, where you saw consolidation in the feed yards, you'll likely see some consolidation in the cow-calf operations as well.
0: Are we going to see contractual production? It happened in poultry in the 1970s. That was the first industry to go that way. Rather than you own these birds, we'll just, you get a barn built, we'll give you a contract and you grow birds for us. And you do that for, let's call it, tyson and now it's happened in pork now almost all the pork in our country is raised on a contractual arrangement you don't own the pigs you just get the manure you do the work you have a barn over in your corner so it's happened obviously on specialty crops from barley to to potatoes and cranberries is it going to happen in beef
1: you know, that's a, that's a really good question. I don't know if I have a very good answer for that, just because of the fact of, you know, you talked about poultry and you talked about hogs, where we call them vertig- vertically integrated systems, where the packer owns the hogs, he contracts the farmer to then raise those hogs and send them to the packer. You know, there has been feed yards that have—or packers that have owned feed yards, but we have seen them— uh, transfer ownership of them feed yards lately and you know we have a thing called the formula basis and so I can go ahead and forward contract my cattle to the packer on a, for, a formula basis and then feed them to a specification. And so it kind of vertically integrates it, but it also allows you to have your independence on your own as well.
0: Yeah, Troy, the thing is, the argument probably is that the packers uh, say, why would we want to own all this? Because we're letting someone else do all the work and have all those vast acres of grass and uh, go out at midnight and take care of these calves, and we're not really paying much for it. So really, as long, <laughs> it's almost like there's not a big incentive for them to, because they're not paying as much also it seems like the supply isn't on the pork and poultry side it seemed like it just fixed supply and guaranteed them the supply and the specs that they wanted uh and also it removed the volatility beef not got that as much
1: well you think about some of the companies that uh, the the packing companies you know they have a lot of capital invested in their packing plants how much capital do they have available to go ahead and you know, keep that vertical integration because the, it's a capital-intensive industry to be able to do that, and they can spread out some of that risk, spread out some of that capital investments. If you don't do that, and of course, the turns.
0: If I if I own chickens, it takes me forty-three days to get them from a, from a hatchling to being butchered in my facility uh, on, a, on a beef animal. You're talking eighteen months, so my turn on my capital is going to be a, a lot further and farther between. Maybe that's the reason that it doesn't happen. Correct. Yep. Closing thoughts. Troy Backelman is my guest. He's a good dude. I wasn't sure at first. You know, he's one of these cattle fast guys. These cattle people. They run around in their cowboy boots and their belt buckles and their big attitudes. And there he was. And I thought, oh, boy, another cowboy with an attitude. Anyway, Troy's been my guest. He's the analyst for Cattle Facts. He's been a wonderful guest with great information. I enjoyed his presentation. Closing thoughts. Last ideas on meat, poultry, beef, pork, the world.
1: Yeah, I just think that beef demand has been relatively strong these last couple years. And, you know, the the product that the U.S. consumer is demanding, the U.S. Uh, cattle producer is producing. And, you know, as we look forward, I'm optimistic for the cattle industry. You know, there's always going to be your highs and lows in the markets and things like that. But demand has been there to meet the supply and, and things are going pretty good. And if not, you can sell them a six-year-old dairy cow steak for $58 at a steakhouse in Chicago, or so I read. You know, I think if we can pick one up for $50 a hundredweight, you and I should go in on one.
0: <laughs> I tell you what, I, I mean, someone's making a killing because we know what they sell for. Troy Bachman's been my guest, and I really appreciate you joining me. We talked about meat. We talked about cattle. We talked about analysts. We talked about consumption. We talked about trends. We talked about consumers. I know you got a lot of it, and thanks for joining us. Till next time, it's the business of agriculture.